you said before about Michael Myers living in our house. Is that really true? Is everything all right? Who are you? I came to help your family. This force, this thing that lived inside of him came from a source too violent, too deadly for you to imagine it. It grew inside him, contaminating his soul. It was pure evil. This baby, Jamie's baby. She is the master of his bloodline. Babysitting with him that night, the night he murdered his sister. Michael heard a voice. It told him to kill his family. I know what's going on. <laughs> it must be the boogeyman. <laughs> Here I come, boogeyman. As you know, I am really scared. You're listening to Halloween Unleashed. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Halloween Unleashed. I am your host, Chris Morgan. And today's episode, we are going to be going back to Halloween 6 for, it feels like the second or third time, if you count the Throwback Thursday episode, which all these episodes and more are available in our archives at anchor.fm forward slash Halloween Unleashed or on any of your podcast apps, Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, Breaker, Stitcher, you name it, it's all there. So just search for us, see if we're there, and if not, request it. So anyway, going into today's episode, my goal was to have Brandon Zachman with me to break down another episode of Halloween 6. Um, Unfortunately, due to his schedule and mine, um, we were just unable to link up last week, which is why there was no episode. So I'm recording this on a Sunday, and I'm hoping to get this out on Monday the 20th, so that everybody can have an episode this coming week. But Um, that's why podcasting is a hobby, guys. You know, everybody's got a full-time job. Everybody's got their own lives. Everybody's got something going on. Um, we're not always going to be able to meet the every week, uh, deadline. Some weeks it will be every week. Some weeks it will not. So we're doing the best that we can to link up. He is very interested in coming back for the Warlock episode And um, I really hope he can because uh, I miss uh, chatting with him. It feels like it's been way too long. And um, looking forward to our next episode being the Warlock episode. Maybe it'll be later this week. Maybe it'll be next week. Maybe it'll be the week after. But bottom line is we're working hard to get content out for you all the time, which is why we really appreciate um, everyone downloading, listening, sharing, and subscribing wherever you listen to these podcasts. So um, with that being said, let's go ahead and dive right in um, to the movie of mistakes of Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. Um, But I will say this will be the last movie mistake episode for a little while. 
um, as I feel that it needs a little bit of a break, and I know I need a little bit of a break because they're getting a little, um, what's the proper way to explain it without saying that it's, it's, it's a, it's not, it's not an episode that is wasted. It's, it's all fun. We try to have a good time, but there's a lot of people that say, Hey, I can look this stuff up online. But hey, it's a Halloween podcast and we're going to have different things. And some people may like the subject of the week and may not. And that's okay. Bottom line is, is uh, I listen to, you know, you've heard me say it many times, countless podcasts out there, mostly wrestling. But for the most part, there's certain topics that I'm not sure if I would even like that episode. But I go listen to it because of the banter and the backstories and the other behind-the-scenes stuff that usually are sidebars that tie in to what's going on during that episode. So I may not like a, a, a subject matter. Perfect example, um, recently on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff and Conrad Thompson, they were talking about Slamboree 99 was not a fan of the pay-per-view, never watched it, never cared for it. I was out of WCW by 99 anyway, so that was not even something I was interested in. But Eric and Conrad are so good with banter and sidebarring and telling you about the business of the wrestling business that I wanted to tune in and just hear what they had to say So to show my support. So that's all I'm saying. If there's a subject that is being talked about that maybe you may not want to hear all the movie mistakes on that particular episode, tune in just to see what myself and my guest or me are going to sidebar on because there's always something that you're going to pick up new. All right. So Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers uh, came out September 29th, 1995 and opened up number two at the box office and um, it opened up against uh, seven, which uh, was obviously number one. That was stiff competition came out September 29th was out of the theaters by uh, October 31st. I was going to go watch it um, on October 31st and um, it was already out of theaters. A couple weeks later ended up in the dollar theater was in the dollar theater for a week and um, was gone. So I had to wait. You know, it was rumored that because of um, the lack of of a box office success that it was, that it may not come out on DVD. Plus, there was a lot, and I mean a lot, of legal troubles going on, um, even after into the uh, post-production and distribution of this film. So therefore, um, the home video release was held up for quite some time. Um, I know a group of my friends and I, we contacted, which was the uh, Buena Vista, which was the uh, distribution house for Miramax and Dimension Films. Um, all those were divisions of Buena Vista Home Video, which was a Disney property at the time. Um, but maybe still is. I didn't even look that up. But uh, point being is about 30 of us got together and uh, started calling Buena Vista every day, which I covered in detail on the Halloween 6 mask episode uh, with Brandon. 
And um, yeah, we called pretty much every day until we got an answer that it was going to be coming out later in in 96. So um, the DVD release came out September of 1996. I got one of those uh, advanced screener copies from a buddy of mine who was managing a video store. Um, And he knew how big of a Halloween 6 fan that I was. So he saved the screener copy for me, uh, gave it to me. I hosted a watch party with a bunch of the friends that did call in with me. And uh, here we are. You know, we 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 had a great time, watched the hell out of that tape and, uh, you know, got Halloween 6 out. Now, at that time, we didn't know about the infamous producer's cut, which uh, started making the rounds about a year after it had been on home video for a little while. Um and then several different incarnations of that bootleg uh, kind of went around for a number of years uh, before the official release came out in uh, 2014 as part of the uh, box set uh, Blu-ray uh, through Scream Factory, which uh, we were so blessed with to have finally have a good quality version, an official release of it. And... Um, the rest, as they say, is history. Now, at first, it was only available in the box set, which was the enticement to make more money off us Halloween fans. But then um, now you can go, you can pick it up at Walmart for like six bucks or whatever it is. Uh, now, it doesn't have any special features on it, which sucks. But uh, I know if you get it in the box set, I know it had the Entertainment Tonight and all those all those little added features, which have now since been released on uh, YouTube. You can go do that. But there were several different cuts of this film, several different uh, hands in the cookie jar, and a lot of chefs in the kitchen trying to churn this this movie out. Now, um, I've talked about it on other podcasts, but a lot of people ask, Chris, why are you a fan of this piece of shit movie? you know, in one version, it's, you know, Myers being, um, you know, the sacrificial lamb for genetic ex- experimentation, which is the theatrical cut. Same with a lot of that in the director's cut. But then the producer's cut is uh, picking up more on the cult of Thorn that was introduced in Halloween 5. Um, so Daniel Farrens was tasked to uh, fix that entire mess. And... Uh, You know, say what you want, but I think that he did the best that he possibly could. And at least he tried to give us all a good Halloween film. Whether you think it was or wasn't is irrelevant. Um, At least he tried. There's a lot of little uh, innuendos and little nods back to the original movie and the original characters and the different mythologies throughout. And I think that he did a fantastic job with trying to connect everything for one giant Halloween movie. Unfortunately, it was the first um, distributed Halloween film by a major studio. Because as everyone knows, it was six years between Halloweens. Um, Nobody thought that they were going to do a Halloween 6 post-Halloween 5 with all the troubles it was going through. Um, different parts of the franchise was being sold off, different uh, companies were dropping out, licenses were expiring, you name it. There was just, there was a lot of bullshit going on, which typically, I don't know what it is about this franchise, but they always find a way 
to get themselves in some sort of a issue with something or someone. But um, Halloween 6 opened up, like I said, number 2, September 29th, 1995. And um, it was continuing. The storyline began in Halloween 4, the return of Michael Myers, and uh, trying to clean up the mess that was introduced in Halloween 5. So what we're going to do is we're going to um, just dive right in here. Um, during the flashback scene at the beginning of the film, when Jamie is being taken by the man in black away from the police station, she is forced into a mid-1990s model Ford conversion van. Since the scene took place in 89, this model wouldn't have existed. We covered something like this in, uh, in the Halloween 2 episode with the, with the ambulance. I, I didn't even fucking know um, what that this was even a thing. So somebody really, really spent a lot more time than needed to be um, to figure out what van was what and if it was even possible. Apparently, the Ford vans of the 80s had rectangular-shaped grills instead of the trapezoidal-shaped one that was shown in the producer's cut, which this scene all took place in the producer's cut. We didn't get any of this in, in the theatrical, which was... Uh, which sucks. But, uh, you know, my point is, who gives a fuck? You know, really, who cares about that little thing? Um, yes, is it a mistake? Sure. But only someone that is being extra nitpicky would go back and pick something like that out. Um, audio-visual unsynchronized, which happens a lot in films, but this one it happens at the 26-minute mark. Tommy listens to the recorded radio show uh, on a tape deck, rewinds the tape deck to hear the section again. The tape speed drops from 15 uh, down to 7 without changing the pitch, which is not going to, uh, that's not going to work. It's clearly to uh, see a slow, it's clear to see a slower real speed and uh, the pitch is still exactly the same. And the one thing I noticed is uh, there's audio added into that that wasn't in the original playback. Go back and listen for yourself. It's clearly not there, and then he replays it, and then it's there. All right. Um, so there's a, another error, despite being depicted as an expert of the Cult of Thorn, that he studied, uh, he is a student of the black arts. Tommy misses pronounces Sam Hain, pronouncing it. Uh, should be Samhain, and uh, he pronounced it as Sam Hain. Um, we covered this in um, in Halloween too. I think we all say Sam Hain. Who gives a shit? Uh, continuity. Uh, when Mrs. Strode is cleaning up her porch, she is wearing Nike Air shoes. When she goes into the house, into the basement, we see a close-up of her shoes, and they're and they change completely uh, to Sacconi brand shoes. And then she discovers Michael in her house while on the telephone. She is wearing the Sacconi sneakers. Then as she runs into her yard, uh, once out of the house, the Nike Air shoes reappear. Um, it's a costuming mistake. Maybe they didn't think anybody was going to pick up on it. Um, could be a number of reasons why that happened. It does happen quite frequently in different films or TV shows. All right. Um... When he's on the phone with Barry Sims, 
Tommy manages to hold the phone in his right hand and at the same time type with the same hand. Now, it's cut cut in between different shots and uh, from everything I've read and talked to Daniel Ferens about is Joe Chappelle was notorious for reshooting and adding in stuff like all the time. Um, he shot... 10 times more coverage coverage on scenes that were conversational or you know exposition than needed to be versus like the the uh, action sequences where he didn't shoot enough so uh, here's my take on it is we don't know we already know that there's three or four different cuts of this film all with uh different footage and different scenes and different dialogue and all this stuff so is it plausible that potentially um, the scene that they cut to, they didn't have anything else when they cut to that shot and something was different from one take to the next? Absolutely. You know, so I'm going to hold that up as a director error and because and, since I don't know what the intention was or what was shot and what wasn't. So maybe that was the only shot that they had. They shot all this other stuff and just didn't have anything with him typing and they cut to the second unit stuff. And by that point, it had gone through 27 different chefs. Um, and they were on the, not second unit, but third, fourth, fifth, or maybe even sixth unit uh, production just to get some inserts that they were missing from editing. It happens all the time. We don't know. So I'm going to hold that up as a director error and a continuity error from the, uh, we don't know what was there and what wasn't. Um, so back to the theatrical cut, uh, much like the film, um, in the early bootleg stuff, we're going to be probably jumping back and forth to different cuts, uh, because it doesn't really say what these errors are from. It just has a list of errors. So there's blood running down Jamie's chin when she's being impaled on the farm equipment, then disappears and then reappears in different cuts. Again, shot different times different takes, different inserts, just bad. In the map of the bus station, we, we, we're, um, we are to be believed that Haddonfield is located in Livingston County, Illinois. In previous films, it was Warren County, so that doesn't make any sense. Uh, when John Strode goes downstairs, the position of his hair changes, and uh, that is easy to explain. Um... If you watch the producer's cut, it doesn't change. But if you watch the theatrical cut, it's not like they went and reshot all that that entire scene. Um, they reshot parts of it and kept parts of it. So the parts where his hair changes is the theatrical cut and the original producer's cut. So, yes, it's going to change because um, I think the... Uh, the uh, the reshoots were done obviously in California and was done like three or four months later. It was definitely after Donald Pleasance's death. So I'm estimating between March and April um, that these reshoots were done. This next one uh, says Michael appears to lose and gain weight in various scenes. That's like the John Strode thing. Uh, reshoots. Um, different different cuts of the film. And that's where you can, that's where it's really jarring is okay that scene was definitely reshot just like uh you know jamie uh, jc brandy 
um, actually um, lost a bunch of weight between uh, the the timing of filming in October of '94 and uh, the mid part of '95 when she came back. So seven or eight months later, she said she's been on record that she did lose some weight, and so therefore when they uh, brought her back for the reshoots, she was noticeably different from the previous uh, scenes that they had shot. Throughout the movie, Mrs. Blankenship is portrayed as uh, practically deaf. Uh, Beth points out that you could hear, that you could drive a truck through her living room and she wouldn't even hear it, but she carries on a conversation with Danny with no trouble whatsoever. So, obviously it was a... I don't think that was a mistake. I think that's part of her ruse. Um, when she's revealed later on to be part of the Cult of Thorn. The size of the baby changes several times at the beginning of the movie. Also, the baby is far too big to be a newborn. That hap- That's not a mistake just with Halloween. That happens on um, movie shoots and TV shows all the time. Um, I think it's a law that they have to be a certain age to be uh, a working baby. Uh, so... That's going to happen. You can't bring a newborn on the set, obviously. And the theatrical version, uh, before Michael starts the the doctor massacre, he hears the sound of uh, Tommy and Kara fleeing into another room. He stops, turns around to investigate the sound, uh, the sound, but doesn't find anything. As he turns to walk the other way, they show his uh, Reflection in the mirrors on the wall, and if you look, you'll see a crew member in the mirror just before the mirror is out of frame. Um, I never knew that. Errors in geography. In Halloween 1978, Dr. Wynn tells Loomis that Haddonfield Haddonfield is 150 miles away from Smith's Grove Sanitarium. The map on the bus station shows that Haddonfield and Smith's Grove are located between Pontiac and Dwight, Illinois. Uh, Illinois, uh, respectively, Pontiac and Dwight are only about 20 miles apart in real life. Um, I do know that in the original script that I've read that Loomis and uh, Wynn were in a helicopter for the most part, which is why they're able to move around so freely and quickly. Uh, But due to budget and the health of Donald Pleasance, they didn't shoot that. Factual errors, uh, when Kara calls home, Beth answers a cordless phone, but the base station would not work without electricity. Um, yeah, just bad, but it happens. Plot holes, uh, when Tommy is listening to Jamie talk to Barry Sims again, he could hear the bus station attendant, okay, I've already covered that, uh, revealing mistakes, um, at around six minutes, the text of the newspaper cuttings on Tommy's wall do not do not relate to the events of the original Halloween. While the headlines refer to Michael's killings, the body of the articles discuss, amongst the other subjects, an international conference and political difficulties in a major in, in, for a city mayor. Yeah, I, I never read it that closely. I just read the headlines and moved on. Um, but yeah, it, it that that stuff happens all the time, you know. So. Uh, it's not a Halloween mistake. It's just it's it's a Hollywood mistake because they do it all the time. Um, so continuity after Michael has thrown Jamie on the forked bars, he holds his hands up to her face and then suddenly rips her shirt. And the next scene, the shirt is still on on her and not ripped in the producer's cut. Okay. 
Um, yeah, this part always bothered me. When Tommy goes back to the bus depot, he finds a blood trail that was left by Jamie. When she died the previous night, Tommy's there during the day or early morning. And when Tommy finds the blood on, in the sink, he touches it and it's still wet. Blood dries in only about four minutes, so it, could have been, uh, it couldn't have been left by Jamie if we're going by real mistakes. So, um, again, it's a plot device. I try not to hold that stuff too close um, because without that plot point, obviously, he wouldn't have found the baby. And that, that was the whole goal of the entire thing. Um, so, let's see. Visible crew and equipment when Jamie is driving the pickup truck and Michael Myers is driving the van chasing her right when Michael turns the headlights on. You can see two people in the van. Hmm. In the scene where Michael Myers impales the nurse's head on a spike in the darkened hallway, we first see Michael walking mysteriously out of the darkness and in plain sight of the nurse. Then the camera angle changes to Michael's POV where he doesn't see the nurse until he walks around the corner. Yeah, that always kind of bothered me. It's just it's just an editing mistake. Um, in the opening of the original Halloween, the backyard of the Myers house is level with the back door leading into the kitchen. In this movie, the kitchen door is uh, accessed by the steps showing that it's high off the ground. It also means that the house is on an embankment. If this is true, why does Kara... Kara walk on completely flat ground while going by the side of the house. Um, again, I think we're getting a little nitpicky. I mean, the, the, the house has changed now. This is now the third house, and obviously they shot it in a different town. But uh, I'm trying not to nitpick too much on that, considering that this house looked closer to the original than uh, what we got in Halloween 5, which was, oh my God, so bad. Um cool house just ugh. um when john's uh john strode's john strode's head is electrocuted uh it explodes twice i just think that was more for an an effect to amp up that that uh excitement that the studio wanted because they felt that the movie was uh boring um so yeah let's just get rid of all these uh, all this exposition and story and let's add in a bunch of special effects that make no sense. Like, okay, he's going to be impaled on this little uh, fuse box and his head's going to explode from it, which comes down that either it's Dimension or Joe Chappelle's uh, MO and what he's known for because in Phantoms, uh, there's some heads that explode in there too from a simple gunshot from 50 yards away. So, I don't know. Maybe it's just a Joe Chappelle thing. Maybe it's a Dimension Films thing. I don't know. In the original film, the Myers house is very tall and thin with skinny uh, support posts on the porch and only two windows on the second floor. It is also lower to the ground. In this movie, the house, which is supposed to be the same, is considerably wider and larger and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, we've already talked about that. It's the third house. It's the sixth film. I'm trying not to bust too much on the continuity of the house considering it's not even the same house you're comparing apples to oranges uh throughout the film tommy is not wearing a belt then suddenly when he gets to the maximum security in smith's grove he's wearing a belt and it stays for the rest of the film again reshoots theatrical versus producer's cut and that's the easiest way to explain the different the different uh, reshoots in the original shoot 
Um, so, yeah, someone just didn't go back and watch the original tapes and see that he didn't have a belt. That happens, especially on a troubled production like this one. When Kara, Danny, and Tommy are running from Michael, they go into the room with the dead fetuses. Uh, Kara locks the door. Uh, with there being two locks in the door, you can hear her locking both of them. But when Michael uh, punches the door and rips the doorknob, you can see that there, uh, that there are two locks on it only, and only one hole for the bottom one to, to only lock. How did Kara lock the door when the upper one didn't even go to another lock? Um, I don't know. <laughs> um, again, I, I blame a lot of the production problems and reshoots on this. Uh, it's just, yeah. Anytime you start getting into massive amounts of reshoots where half the film's being reshot months later, uh, you're going to have some big problems, which obviously this, this did. Um, anyway. Jamie takes off running with, with her baby. 33 seconds later, Michael kills the nurse. 30 seconds have passed since killing the nurse, and Michael's right behind Jamie and somehow manages to find a knife along the way. Um, all in one minute and five-second time frame. Yeah, it, but maybe Smith's Grove and the underground tunnels had knives stored along the way in case... Uh, he needed to pick one up. I don't know. Trivia. The production of the film was notoriously troubled. There were numerous writers working on numerous drafts for the script Script before one was finally settled on. The filming was hectic with many scenes being omitted or rewritten on set, which we've discussed. Um, and after the first cut was complete, a poor test screening uh, led to the film going through drastic reshoots that altered much of the story, including the addition of a brand new ending, which had to be rewritten um, around the fact that Donald Pleasance had passed away shortly after in the end of principal photography. So yeah, we had talked about this before. Um, and, and, and the test screening that they did, you know, uh, were a bunch of 14 year old, um, people that weren't even fans of Halloween. So it's like, if you're going to continue a storyline introduced in um, basically Halloween four, because I look at Halloween four through six as a trilogy and you're continuing the, the, the uh, storyline and the character development, everything that happened, especially one that, you know, definitely picked up from Halloween five. And, you know, you're going in and doing this with a, bunch of people who have never seen any of the sequels, maybe saw the original, but never saw any of the sequels, and you're expecting them to like it or understand it, I mean, that's that's stupid. Um, but of course, that they panicked, they didn't look at the logistics, which most studios do not, and then once you don't look at logistics, you have what you have here, which is a fucking mess. And um, it's unfortunate, because... I think outside of Michael fucking his niece, I think that the producer's cut is a much better uh, told movie. There are some scenes in the theatrical cut that I like, but overall, the I I believe that the uh, that the producer's cut is the better version. Um, I like the tone of it, and you know, again, the atmosphere, the tone, the color palette. Uh, Joe Chappelle 
from a visual standpoint, is probably one of the best directors that there is out there. But from a storytelling point of view, I don't know how he's progressed and what he's done. I know he's working on a lot of TV now, but I know that this was like his first feature. And um, so, I mean, just tattling on myself, the first time I did a feature, I was not sure of myself. I second-guessed myself. And um, we were working on a ten dollars to $15,000 budget. And I had to pretend like I like I had um, ten to fifteen years under my belt when I had really only had a couple, and I had never worked on a budget before or anything outside of my own work. So um, the fact that his thieves quartet um, got got him this gig. And then he signed a three-picture deal with Miramax because he was this big up-and-coming visual director. But it was really early in his career, and he wasn't polished. You know, uh, I've always enjoyed his visual, um, his visual style of directing. Um, I, again, I haven't I haven't watched any of his um, stuff. I didn't even watch Skulls too. Um, because by that point I was tapped out, but, uh, I did watch Phantoms, was not a big fan of that movie, but visually it was a beautiful film. Um, so he does some really innovative stuff with the camera movements and the tracking and, and keeping the, keeping the audience vested into visually what's going on. He's at least back then he just wasn't the best storyteller. So maybe he's, maybe he's fixed that part of it. I don't know. Um, but um, maybe I'll, maybe I'll track down some of his stuff and see if I can't watch some stuff. But, um, yeah, overall, uh, I don't think Joe Chappelle was the worst director of Halloween. I, I think there was so many other things that was outside of his, um, control. But at the end of the day, when you're the director, um, the success or failure of a film is on your shoulders, unfortunately, because you're the guy that, that directed it. You know, you're the good guy. You're the bad guy. I mean, when when we look at um, we look at other films that we don't like, we don't blame the producers or the studio. We blame the director and say, "Hey, I don't ever want to see him ever touch another whatever film ever again." You know, so I think it's a little unfair. But at the same time, you know, it was his film. It was his choice, and I think he didn't win a lot of uh, Halloween fans over when he said that uh, all of Loomis's uh, scenes were boring. Um, you do that to an icon like that, you're, you're, that's the kiss of death, in my, in, in my opinion. Uh, but overall, I'm um, going to work on wrapping this up. Uh, again, next episode, we're going to talk about the Warlock. If you want to comment on anything that I missed on this episode, be sure to send in a a voicemail you can do that by calling 407-982-4709 or posting it right in the thread that i'm going to post with this episode in the group which is if you're on facebook want to find us over there uh search halloween unleashed the podcast and uh we are the only group that shows up um if you're a known asshole or a troublemaker we won't accept you but uh we pretty much accept anybody um there is a thread for collection um, pieces that you're getting. 
from other artists or different artifacts or whatever that you're getting keep it in that one thread uh, we, we try to make everything else about uh, the podcast or subjects that we're looking at bringing up and just generally we don't want 55 different threads of collection stuff or projects that you're working on um, keep that into one thread but outside of that we really appreciate everybody listening and again we're going to take a little break from all of these uh, movie mistake episodes and get back to talking uh, independent Myers masks which I know a lot of people that's going to make a lot of people happy and uh, I'm going to try to link up with Brandon uh, Zachman on the Warlock which uh, I know is his favorite mask and he's been tasked to find out as much information as he possibly could uh, he was tasked to do this with me again he had all the same trivia and movie mistake breakdown that I did but just we couldn't we couldn't link up so maybe within the next week maybe two weeks but uh, we're going to get an episode for you and I'm going to try to work around his schedule uh, to make that happen for each and every one of you but thank you for listening and we will talk with you next time thanks <laughs>